Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open up to the book of 1 Peter. If you go to the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, and take a short left, you'll find it there, about four or five little books in. And so, 1 Peter, beginning uh, in chapter 1 today, we're going to make our way over the next five weeks uh, through as much of this book as we can. Uh, I found out about midway through this week that I probably could have spent five weeks in the first chapter. Uh, there's so much here, but we'll do a little bit of a flyby through through this book. As you're turning in your, in your Bibles, there are just a couple of things I wanted to make mention of. Again, today at, at 4 o'clock, we've been having a lot of conversations in our church. We, we actually elected a team back the end of last year called our Titus team that's been looking at uh, this, this biblical office uh, known as elders. Uh, it's a role in the church that, that we have not had up to this point uh, in the way that the Bible describes it. And so we're, we're talking about that in these days and how to, we could possibly implement that in the days ahead. And so we're going to have an open discussion today at 4 o'clock. Come bring your questions. Uh, hopefully we'll have some answers and we can have a good discussion together uh, about this. And we'll be facing some decisions about that uh, in, in the months to come. Um, that's today at 4 o'clock. And next Sunday, if you're new to Corinth, uh, maybe just been coming for a short time and you're wondering, okay, I, I like what I'm seeing here on Sunday morning, but I'd like to know a little bit more about uh, the church as a whole. Maybe you're thinking about membership. Um, we have a class called Corinth 101 uh, that we're going to start next Sunday. We do this about every three or four months. And uh, I'll be teaching this class at, at our 915 hour right up in room 202. Corinth 101 and 202 at 915. A lot of numbers there, right? So, uh, but that's when we're when we'll have that it starts next Sunday. It's just four weeks. Uh, we'll finish it up through the month of November. So, uh, if you want to learn more about our church, see what makes us tick, get a kind of behind the scenes look at some of, of who we are and what we do, uh, that's the class for you. So it'll start next Sunday, and encourage you in that way. So, First Peter, the title of this series of messages is Living Hope comes from the third verse of what we're going to look at today, and it's really just the theme of this book. This is a book of hope and of encouragement. And yet this book is also very much a, a mixture of some themes that we really don't think go very well together. This book talks a great deal about salvation, which we, we love to talk about in the church but it talks about salvation in the context of suffering, which we don't so much want to talk about. It talks a great deal throughout this book about the glory of God, the glory that's yet to be revealed in its fullness. And we, and we think about those things and we love to hear about the glory of God and what He has awaiting for us in the place that we often refer to as heaven or, or in the new earth, the things that God is preparing for His people. And yet as Peter talks about glory. He talks about glory in the midst of pathways of pain in our lives. And there's these odd mixtures that happen all throughout this book. Themes that seem to almost contradict one another. Paradoxes that come together. And it's a beautiful portrayal of the reality of the gospel. Notice I said the reality of the gospel. Because... What we're often seeing in our culture during these days is a false gospel that doesn't understand that there is a proper mixture of salvation and suffering, of glory and of pain, of trials and of joy. 
You see, it's at that intersection, as we're going to talk about today, it's at the intersection of those things that we find the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we could easily miss it if we trust in what's often put forward today known as the prosperity gospel. There are many problems with the prosperity gospel. One of the main problems is they try to steer people clear of the very intersection that we're going to aim at this morning. The prosperity gospel simply says God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy in this life. And so trust in Jesus and he'll be your genie in the bottle and he'll give you everything that you ever wanted. Now there are many problems with that. One problem is that's partially true, but that's a promise that's for the life to come. There's a promise that precedes that one that we're going to talk about this morning that the prosperity gospel overlooks. The true gospel has something much deeper, much more grand, and much more beautiful. The Apostle Peter here writes to a people who were enduring suffering. I'm just going to go and sell it straight to you this morning. Persecution was beginning to abound against believers in the Roman Empire. Peter writes from the very heart of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome. He writes to a people who were experiencing the very beginnings of a persecution that was about to grow much worse During this particular time in the early 60s AD, persecution was limited to different pockets around the empire. And it kind of happened here, there, and everywhere. But it wasn't widespread, and it definitely wasn't empowered by the Roman Empire. Just a few years from Peter writing this letter, though, persecution of Christians would become the official law and command of the Roman Empire. And it would remain that way for over 100 years. These were people who were beginning to see the first hints of persecution and suffering. And Peter's writing to them, being very honest with them, saying, worse things are coming. The fiery trial he talks about in chapter 4 that we'll get to. The fiery trial is coming. You're experiencing various trials right now. The fiery trial is coming. And he's teaching them how to be ready. This book intersects our lives at the places where suffering abounds where pain seems to increase and where persecution becomes a reality. That being said, if you're able to stand, would you do so in honor of God's word as we share together 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8. 
Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels, into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can be seated this morning. Father, as we are seated together, Lord, I pray that as we approach this intersection that many of us would rather just avoid, Lord, may we be honest with you today that the false truths of the prosperity gospel seem very good to us. Avoiding the paths of suffering and pain and tribulation and trial seems the best way to us. But would you remind us today, God, that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way leads to destruction. And you have shown us a more excellent way, the way of life. So may we walk in it as a result of what we will see in your beautiful word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the main truth for the day as we begin to talk about this living hope that Peter is putting on display for us. Living hope is found at the intersection of suffering and salvation. This is the hope that Peter is putting on display for us today, a hope that is not like the hope of this world. Here's what we find about the hopes that folks have in this world, whether they are economic hopes or political hopes, whatever thing that people are putting their faith and trusting in this world. What we find is that hope in this world fades with the passing of time. We put our hope in someone that's seeking election, hoping that they will be able to improve our situations. They will be able uh, to lessen our taxes and increase our pleasures. We put our hope in someone who is running for office and then either that person doesn't get elected and our hopes are dashed or they get Elected, and then our hopes are dashed because they're not able to come through on all the promises they made on the way to the office. Hopes in this world have a diminishing return, and yet the hope that Peter is talking about, this living hope, has anything but a diminishing return. This hope begins as a glimmer and grows to a blazing fire of hope in the hearts of God's people 
as they continue to walk the path that we're going to talk about this morning. Living hope is found at the intersection of suffering and salvation. So let's jump right in this morning. Verses 1 through 5, he lays out from the very beginning of this letter the goal. He unmasks the goal of this entire letter from the very beginning of the verses. He writes here in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, someone who was sent out, commissioned by Christ to begin the solid work of building Christ's church. To those who are, and here's how he describes them, elect exiles of the dispersion. He writes to a people who had been scattered by persecution, both Jews and Gentiles in mixture now within the church of God. He writes to a people who had been scattered by persecution. Many had lost homes. They had lost families. They had lost their livelihoods. They were now outcasts in society because they claimed the name of Jesus Christ as the one way of salvation. Because they received the gospel of Jesus Christ as their one hope. Because they were clinging to Christ, they had lost nearly everything else. And Peter's writing here to him, being real honest and saying, you think times are bad now. The fiery trial is coming. Chapter 4, he talks about this. The fiery trial is coming. Many of them probably were sitting there going, well, what have we been under this whole time? But from the very beginning, he unmasks the goal for which they were enduring suffering. It's the same one for us today. He says this, the goal is this. First of all, our hope is in the resurrection. Verse 3. He jumps right into this idea of living hope. And he wants you to understand, this is not hope as the world sees it. This is not a hope so. When we say, when we use the hope, word hope in our culture today, uh, we'll say things like, well, I really hope we're going to have pizza tomorrow night. Now, I hope we're going to have pizza tomorrow night because I like pizza. But at the end of the day, that's just a hope so, right? That's a good probability because... You know, I can order up a pizza and have one here tomorrow night, but there's no guarantee that I'm going to have pizza tomorrow night. It's just a hope so, right? When we use the word hope, we think of a good possibility. When the Bible uses the word hope, though, that's not the idea. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's not a good possibility. It is a secure promise. When you hear the word hope, you need to think the word assurance. We have this living hope. We have this living assurance. There is a concrete foundation on which we are placing all of our hopes and dreams and all of our faith. His name, by the way, is Jesus Christ. Our hope is in His resurrection. The fact that He defeated death and hell in the grave gives us this assurance, this hope that we too will do so. This hope is founded in the resurrection. Secondly, our inheritance is under a reservation. He begins to use this word that Paul loves so much, this idea of an inheritance. It's used all throughout the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel that was promised an inheritance. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but in the New Testament, this idea of an inheritance becomes a living picture of all that God has promised to those who trust in Jesus Christ to those who place their hope in His resurrection life and what He has done for them at the cross, rescuing them from sin, but not just erasing their sins, but drawing them in to eternal life. And our inheritance is, is a summary of all that God has promised to His people. But think about the idea of an inheritance for a moment. In order for you to receive an inheritance, what must happen? Somebody's going to die, right? 
So this was the scandal of the, the story of the prodigal son. We read that story, and we think the scandal was that the, the, the dude went off and, and, and spent his father's money on riotous living, spent it with prostitutes and, and other horrible atrocities. We think that's the scandal. No, the scandal in the, pro, the story of the prodigal son was this, that that boy was brazen enough to ask his father for the inheritance while his dad was still living. That was essentially to look at his father and say, I wish you were dead, Dad, so I could have your stuff. His father should have slapped the boy across the face for that, by the way, and sent him out with nothing. But instead, the father gives him exactly what he asked for, and he squanders the inheritance in riotous living. See, rightly understood, an inheritance is that which only comes to us when someone has died. And that's what Peter's talking about here. Because Christ has died in your place, there is the guarantee of an inheritance. It's already reserved for you. Even more reserved for you than if you call up the Holiday Inn and you reserve a room for tomorrow night. They put your name on the list and you come there and chances are you hope that they will remember your reservation and you'll get your room. This is saying, no, this is a sure, this is not a hope so, this is an assurance. We're staking our faith on this assurance it's found, it's summed up in the inheritance. David Helm said this about the inheritance. He said, the strange truth of the gospel is this. Salvation's future inheritance is gained during this season of present sufferings. How many of you find that just a little bit odd? It seems odd. It, it should seem odd to us. There's, a, there's an oddity here about this truth that oftentimes our world rejects. You see, the, 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 the prosperity gospel is a whole lot more palatable to our culture because we've put so much of our faith in material possessions and in what this world has to offer us. We're not looking to the world that is to come. And so we're trusting, so many are trusting in a gospel that at the end of the day won't really play out. But it sounds really good. This gospel doesn't sound nearly as good. What do you mean it's going to come to us during this season of present sufferings. Surely there's got to be another way, right? Stay with me for a few minutes. Number three, our salvation is due for a revelation. Peter loves the, the, the issue, the topic, the theme of salvation in this letter. It's all throughout uh, the first three chapters. He talks about salvation. And, and, and when we think about salvation biblically, most of the time when the Bible uses the term salvation, when it talks about our salvation, most of the time it talks about our salvation as a completed work. You have been saved. Because of what Jesus did at the cross, you have been saved. But here... Peter's talking about the future reality of our salvation, the idea that we are being saved. There's a progressive nature to our salvation and what Jesus did at the cross for us. What he did is a finished work, and yet Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it's a present reality that's worked out in our lives until that day when it becomes, when the present reality, when the future reality becomes present. He says our salvation is due for a revelation. It's yet to be revealed. You can read it there in verse 5. Ready to be revealed in the last time. Warren Wearsby talked about this past, present, future understanding of salvation. And I wanted to share this quote with you. Speaking about our salvation, he says, We've been chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, and set apart by the Spirit. 
As far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when He chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when He died for me on the cross. But as far as the Spirit is concerned, I was saved when I heard the gospel and received Christ. Notice this. It took all three persons of the Godhead to bring us to salvation. So for those who would step back from the pages of Scripture and say, well, how can we really know that we're saved? Can there really be any assurance in our faith? Peter is laying a bedrock for our faith here and saying there is strong reason for assurance because your salvation was accomplished by the fullness of the Godhead, by the Trinitarian God that we believe in, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in concert with one another. We're rescuing your soul. You want to see assurance in your salvation, take hold of this truth that before the foundation of the world, God chose you. Let me say this, the doctrine of election has become such a source of division in our churches today. And it's so sad because as you read about the doctrine of election, like right here when he calls them the elect, that word for them, that word for them was of the greatest of encouragements. Many of them had lost everything for following Christ. But to understand that before the foundation of the world, before Adam breathed his first breath, God had chosen a people for himself. Don't get caught up in the details of how that chosen took place. Understand that it was all by his grace. It was all God's work. It was not because of something that you would do in the future. It was all because God, by his sovereign grace, looked upon people that he would redeem with the blood of his son and said, I love you. I want you. I choose you. And so what right do we have to look at this salvation as something that might potentially just pass out of our lives? Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Why? Because He placed that love upon your life before you'd ever breathed your first breath. Truly, before Adam had ever breathed his first breath. It's secure. And then He guaranteed it when He sent His Son into the world. His perfect Son, who knew no sin, became sin for us at the cross. So that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. Jesus bought you at the cross. Because of your sin, you were a slave to sin and you were sold into slavery to sin. And Jesus came along and bought you, not with money, but with the price of His own blood. So is your salvation secure? Look to the cross. When He spoke His last words, He said, It is finished. And many are trying to go around in their Christian walk or what they call a Christian walk and try to complete a work that Jesus already finished. That's not what we're talking about this morning. You have nothing to add to what Jesus did at the cross for you. Do you understand that this morning? It's not about you being a better version of yourself. It's not about you pulling yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps. Set aside all those foolish notions and take hold of this gospel which says that He paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He left not one ounce of your sin unaccounted for. And so trust Him. Find assurance in what Jesus did at the cross. And if that's not enough, then the Holy Spirit steps in as the seal of your salvation. 
as the one who guarantees your salvation. The Holy Spirit is put within the lives of the believers. He indwells us as the seal. And we see His outworking in the fruit of the Spirit as we become more peace-loving, as we become more patient, as we find the joy in the Spirit. As these things begin to erupt in our lives, we see that the indwelling presence of the Spirit is manifesting itself and that our lives are being transformed. And this too reminds us of the certainty of what we have. I hope you don't think I'm overstating it this morning, but I've heard far too much in recent days of those who would say, well, how can we really know that we're saved? Read the Scriptures, folks. John says, I've written these things that you may know you have eternal life. And that was not a hope so. That was not a good probability. That was an assurance. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it to abundance. Not, not, well, they might get life. If they're really good, they'll hold on to life. No, I came that they may have life. That was a, that was a guarantee, not a possibility. You can go on and on with this this morning. But I want you to see the faith of Abraham as we move forward. It says in Hebrews 11, 8, by faith, Notice that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as, there's our word, what is it? An inheritance. He was to receive it as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Genesis chapter 12, God calls this man named Abram, who was not some uh, super great man of God as we often uh, picture him, but the Bible does say that Abraham did believe God. It was credited to him his righteousness. He was not a perfect man in any way. Abraham made mistakes. But he took God at his word and left his homeland going to a land that God had promised. Fast forward a few years and you find Abraham and his nephew Lot are on a mountainside together. They've had a disagreement. They're about to part ways. Lot looks towards Sodom and sees a beautiful land that he desires for himself. He sees all that this world has to offer and wants that. And he goes to Sodom. Abraham turns to go the other way. And God says, hold up a minute. Look, Abraham, see all this land out before you. As far as your eyes can see, Abraham, top of this mountain, see these thousands of acres that stretch out before your eyes. Do you see it, Abraham? I'm going to give it all to you and your descendants. Every acre is going to be yours. Abraham was a nomad and had no children of his own at this point. And yet it says that Abraham believed God. He trusted God. He took God at his word. Fast forward to the end of Abraham's life. God has come through on the promise of a son. Isaac has been born the son of the promise, the son through which the Israelites would come. But at the very end of his life, Abraham had only taken possession of one small parcel of that vast land, the parcel on which he buried his wife Sarah. And folks, that's exactly the picture of what I believe God wants to do in our lives. He gives us just a glimpse of the greatness of His promise. Just a shimmer of the glory that is yet to be revealed in its fullness. And the, for those who walk by faith like Abraham did, that is enough. It's enough 
Just a, just a glimmer of His glory. Just a, just a shimmer of the promise is enough to sustain us. And that's what God does. That's what God does in our lives as He helps us to see it. And, and it's not just the glimpse that sustains us. It's the fullness of the promise that He's already put on display in His Word. It's taking God at His Word and believing His promise will come to pass because God is faithful. I have to move a little quicker. We're not going to get through this this morning. Number two on your outline there. I want you to see the glory unveiled. It's like Peter's trying to help us to draw back the the things that are inhibiting us from seeing the glory of God. Our sufferings, our pains, our circumstances. The things in our lives that that are hindering us from having the kind of faith that will sustain us. He's trying to draw back the curtain here that we might see. What do we need to see? First of all, we need to see that the road to glory is a pathway of suffering. Now, if I were to ask how many in the room love this truth, I don't think I'd get any hands. And rightly so. Peter is not some crazy person here who is calling upon us to begin to love suffering. That's not what we're talking about here. This is not some sadistic call to the Christian life. But it's a reality check. It's a reality check that reminds us that the road to glory is always a pathway of suffering. He reminds us of our Savior. What was it like for Jesus? Who stepped out of the glory of God, having lived with His Father in eternal glory, Since before the foundation of the world, the eternal God stepped out of heaven and into the sufferings of this world. Born not in the king's palace, which would have been enough of a step down. Born in a lonely manger. A cattle stall. Born amongst the filthy animals in what was probably more of a cave than the pretty little picture that we often have at Christmas time. He stepped right into our suffering. Why? Because he knew that the pathway of suffering is the road that leads to glory. And he lived a life of suffering all of his days. He was tempted in every way that we are without sin. He experienced all of our sufferings, all of our pains. He knew what it was like to be lonely. He knew what it was like to to experience the tinges of depression. He knew what it was like to see friends turn away and betray you. He knew what it was like to suffer in every way. And yet he overcame that suffering and entered into his glory and invites those who would follow him to walk the same path. You say, well, I don't like that road. Well, partially, I think Peter would say, too bad. It's the only way that gets to glory. See, I want, I want plan B. I want health, wealth, and happiness in this life, and then I just want that to abound in the life to come. That's what the prosperity gospel seeks to promise to us, and yet it's a false promise. Because the road to glory is always a pathway of suffering. See, I don't don't like that. You don't have to like it. But you need to take hold of it. Let's move on from here. I want want to show you a couple of others that write about this. Paul writes in Romans 5, he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. That sounds like complete idiocy. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing, notice he doesn't say hoping, so... Knowing, this is an assurance, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance, or your version may say perseverance, long-suffering. 
Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So God has a purpose in your pain. God has a reason for your suffering. And let's not, let's not trivialize it and try to give these trite little answers. Well, I know I'm going through this because God wants to teach me something. Well, yes, God does want to teach you something, but there's something so much deeper here. Don't look for the little lesson in the suffering and think that that's enough because the reality is most of the time, if you only knew the little lesson in the suffering, you would still be left wanting more. You still wouldn't want the suffering. But when you begin to see the glory that's at the end of the road of suffering, when you begin to get that glimpse of the light at the end of the tunnel, when that begins to be the hope of glory for you, when it becomes a living hope that's living in you because Christ is living in you, because His Holy Spirit is indwelling you, because God the Father loved you enough to choose you before the foundation of the world, when you get that kind of a perspective on your life, then your suffering takes on a whole new meaning. And you begin to understand how suffering produces Hope. You see, our world thinks suffering produces hopelessness. So I'm told I have terminal cancer. There's no hope in that. I'm told I'm going to lose my job. There's no hope in that. My spouse comes to me and says they want to leave me. They don't love me anymore. There's no hope in that. And yet in Christ, all of this takes on a meaning that it never could have had apart from the cross. James talks about it. Count it all joy. Notice the theme of joy linked with suffering. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Same kind of thing Peter's talking about. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. Same word for endurance that Paul was talking about. Same message, different author. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a lot of folks that would like to pit James and Paul against one another, seeing that some people think that they have differing messages, and yet when you see what they're really talking about is two sides of the very same coin. They're talking about two sides of the same reality of the gospel. And here he's saying there is a joy to be found in suffering. We're not, we're not rejoicing because we're suffering. Don't misunderstand this. Again, this is not some sadistic picture. We're not rejoicing because of our suffering, but we are rejoicing in our suffering because we understand that our suffering is going to bear out something that could be accomplished in us in no other way. You say, what are you talking about? Remember what Jesus experienced the night before he went to the cross? He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying so hard to his father that it says that his sweat was rolling like drops of blood out of his scalp. By the way, there's actually a, a physical condition that can occur when you, when you get so anxious about something that you can actually burst blood vessels in your forehead. And many people think that's exactly what was happening with Jesus. He was so wrapped up in what was getting ready to happen the next day. The cross was no minor step for Jesus. And he prayed what? Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. You remember that? What was the follow-up prayer? And not my will, but yours be done. 
So what's the point? Jesus was looking at the path to the cross, which he saw more clearly than anyone else. He had been talking to them about it for weeks on end up to this point. He had been trying to help them to understand that when he went into Jerusalem, it was going to be to go to the cross. He was going to be arrested. He was going to be beaten. He was going to be killed. He had been trying to tell his disciples for weeks, and all they'd been doing was standing in his way. And he's looking down that pathway. He's looking down that roadway toward the cross. And he's saying, God, is there any other way? If there be any other way, let this cup of suffering pass from me. And yet, not my will but yours be done. So Jesus walked the road of suffering and willingly took the cross for you. And so church, here's the question that I think themes the day. If that's the path that your Savior walked, if that's the path that your Lord walked, then why do we think He would lead us down a path that was so radically different from that? The road to glory is a pathway of suffering. Secondly, the road to glory involves rejoicing in the unseen. Notice I did not say just accepting the unseen. That's kind of where we get in relation to some of these things. We're experiencing a hard time, a time of suffering. We don't really understand why this is happening. We're wrestling with it and we say, well, I'll just have to, I'll just have to accept it. No, Peter's taking us to a deeper place. He's taking us to a deeper place where it's not just re- accepting, it's not just accepting your suffering, but it's rejoicing in your suffering, believing that the promise of God, which says God is going to bear out something in your life through that suffering that could be accomplished in no other way. If there was any other way for your salvation, why would God send Jesus to the cross? Answer that for me today. In your own mind, if God could have accomplished your salvation in any other way, if there was any other way to rescue you from sin and death, from hell and the grave, if there was any other way to rescue you, then would it have not been cruel on the part of God the Father to send His perfect Son to the cross? But there was no other way. And so then we look at the circumstances of our lives when persecution arises because of our faith. When the diagnosis comes that darkens our hearts. When our marriage begins to fall apart. When our kids go astray. We go on and on with the sufferings that that we endure in this life. And we find ourselves asking why, why, why. And in the midst of the whys, let's understand this. Even if we were given the reason, we still wouldn't embrace it. Grant mentioned Job a little while ago. Job and his buddies asked the why for 40 chapters. Grant told you to go read the book of Job. Here's what I'd suggest. Read about the first five chapters. Understand that the next 30 are basically a repetition of chapters 3, 4, and 5. And then read the last chapter where God says, here's the deal, guys. I'm not going to tell you why. Ultimately, it wouldn't matter if I did. What I am going to say is, were you there? When I created the world, when I set the stars in the sky, when I put the planets in motion, do you understand how I caused snow to fall from the heavens? And by the way, he wasn't talking about just a scientific understanding of how the water cycle works. Do you understand how I caused a little boy to look like his daddy? Do you grasp the inner workings of my creation? No, you don't. 
So trust me. You say, that's hard, God. Yeah, it is. But it's necessary. Jesus said to Thomas in John 20, he said, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. There it is. For the things that are, un, that are seen are transient. They're passing away. But the things that are unseen are what? Are eternal. And you say, but wait a minute. You don't know what I'm going through. How could you say it's a light and momentary affliction? You've got to take your suffering and put it on the scales. That's what Paul's saying. So you take your cancer, you take your divorce, you take your being out of work, you take whatever it is that you are suffering for in these days and you put it on the scales with the glory that's yet to be revealed when Christ comes to take you home and you begin to understand, oh yeah, it is a light and momentary affliction. You say, but, but my affliction has lasted for decades. What are decades compared with eternity? That's what Paul's saying. And so you can endure these light and momentary afflictions even if they last for a lifetime because the life that is yet to come will show you, will show you and prove to you that they were really light and momentary. Finally, about the glory being unveiled, I want to say this. The glory, the road to glory ends at our sure salvation. I just want to come back. That's Peter's theme here, this assurance of our salvation. Please don't leave this morning still waffling on your, on your faith in terms of being able to know that you know that you know that you're saved. This assurance is not a license for you to go and live however you want to. If that's what you're taking it for, then, then you're not really understanding assurance at all. This assurance is a firm foundation that will enable you to endure the trials that come into your life. 2 Corinthians 3, And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Notice it says, being transformed. Active process is taking place. Into the same image, how is it happening? From one degree of glory to another. And folks, let's just go ahead and say it. Sometimes those degrees seem so small. God, I know you're transforming me by the renewing of my mind, but it seems so often like it's three steps forward and two steps back. That's how we experience it's one degree of glory to another, and we're wanting it to go ten degrees at a time. That's not the way God works it. But this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, the gift of God. He's seen at work in the pathways of suffering through which He leads us. Again, God has a purpose in your pain, a reason for your suffering, but the ultimate end is His glory. Thirdly, this morning, I want to speak to you about grace for a few minutes. Peter loves the theme of grace in this book. It's in every chapter, and here he begins to unwrap what he means by grace, God's unmerited favor, that God has done something for His people that they could have never done for themselves. Grace, wrapped up in this idea as a gift. And I want you to picture in your mind as we close up this morning, this idea, we're going to be just a few, uh, just a few short weeks from now, we're going to be at Christmas time. 
And in my house, there are going to be presents that are going to be wrapped, and they're going to be put under the tree. There's going to be a whole lot more at my mother-in-law's house because that's her love language. But we are going to, we're going to see presents wrapped and under the tree, and we're going to see kids who, like I was when I was little, I just couldn't wait till Christmas Day. It was, it was my intention that I was going to find out what was in that gift that had my name on it. And I want you to see that. Have that picture in your mind as we walk through these last few verses. First of all, he says the prophets first presented the promise. These guys were the ones who, who brought the promise and they put it under the tree for us. The Old Testament prophets were given promise after promise that something greater is coming. The Messiah is coming. Your King is coming. The Savior is coming. And, and you see verses like Isaiah 53. You see that this King was going to be a suffering servant who was going to die for His people. And here Peter's saying, these guys, they were looking into these things. God was revealing to them what was going to come hundreds of years from their own lives. They were writing things that were for us that we might see the glories of God being displayed through what they were writing and the fulfillment of those things in the life of Jesus. But they were inquiring carefully and they were asking and they were questioning and they were saying, God, we just don't get it. You're giving us these visions. You're giving us these messages for the people. You're talking about this Messiah and, and sometimes He seems like He's going to be a king and sometimes He seems like He's going to be suffering. Sometimes He seems like He's going to be bringing eternal life and sometimes it seems like He's going to be dying. What's the deal here? They were the first to display this intersection of suffering and salvation, of pain and glory, of joy and grief mixed together wherein we find the gospel. They presented the promise, didn't fully understand it. Then the preachers came along in our age, faithfully proclaiming the promise. That's what he says there. That these preachers came along. And it says, it was revealed to them they were now not serving themselves but you, the, the, the prophets, in the things that have now been announced to you. This is, a, this is a present reality. The things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And so the day of the prophets passed on and then God brings preachers onto the scene who would proclaim the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit saying that there is life to be found through the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection for us. The gospel is the grace of God. God has offered to you that which you could have never received any other way. There was no other way. But part of that gospel truth that needs not be left out is this. He is inviting you in to a pathway of suffering that will result in eternal glory. Short-term price, long-term gain. Like when Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we go, what? To die? How is death gain? In light of the gospel, death becomes gain. Suffering bears out our salvation. Pain draws us into his glory. He said, it doesn't make any sense to me. When you see it in light of who Jesus is, it begins to make perfect sense. And even where it doesn't make sense, faith steps in to take us that extra mile. Finally, the prophets, the preachers, and even the angels. I love this picture. It, it just allows, I wish he had expounded on this a little bit. He, he says, things into which angels long to look. And it really is this picture of a little kid on Christmas Day. He's been looking at that sinking present under the tree for weeks. He is agonizing to know what's in that present. He's gotten up on Christmas morning and he's dragging mom and dad out of bed and, and all the wonderful things are happening. And there's this moment 
right before the present is opened, when you, when you see that joy, so you parents have experienced this. There's this moment when there's this, this joyful expression. He doesn't even really understand what's underneath the wrapping. That's the, that's the look on the face of the angels as they look at the church. The angels of heaven who are in the very presence of God are looking at the church of Jesus Christ, those who are being redeemed by His blood, being rescued from their sin, and led down this pathway of suffering into eternal glory. And the angels are yearning to open the gift. But it's reserved for you. It's reserved for you, church. Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. He who knew no sin became sin for you, that through Him you might become the righteousness of God. This great salvation was purchased for you. And it's a beautiful and glorious thing into which even the angels long to look. So that through the manifold... Wisdom of God through the church, it might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God is educating his angels through his church. Folks, if you'll take a step back from your reality, from your circumstances for a moment, and see your life in light of Ephesians 3.10... you begin to understand why Paul could refer to your circumstances and your sufferings as light and momentary trials. So here's the take home this morning. Living hope, living it out, becoming active in this living hope involves this. Being ready, being steady, and being set. I'm going to focus on the last one, but I want you to see it in verse 13. Therefore, he's bringing down the brass tacks here. This is the key to understanding chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Therefore, when we hear that word, we need to ask the question, what is that therefore, therefore? He is referring back to all the first 12 verses, all that he said, all the majestic things that he's spoken about. He's saying, therefore, here's the moment of action, church. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Here is the command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully there. Stop hedging your bets and setting your hope somewhat on your economic status or on your educational background or on the fact that you have people in your life that love you. Stop hedging your bets and set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed. Your hope. How do I do that? You say, you don't know what I'm dealing with? How can I possibly have the kind of living hope that you're talking about? It comes when you begin to understand that the hope is all wrapped up in a person. and His name is Jesus. He is the hope of our salvation. And so we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross and scorned its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God, interceding for His church, praying for His church, taking you by the hand, leading you down paths of suffering that will ultimately result in glory. He is the one. You say, but somebody told me that, that God never does these things in, his, in my life. He just allows them. Read the rest of First Peter, folks. 
So are you saying to me that, that God ordained cancer in my life? I'm going to let you wrestle with that for a minute. It's easy to give us just these little easy answers to things. I'm saying this, God loves you enough that he will do whatever is necessary for your greatest good and his greatest glory. He will do whatever it takes in your life to remove that entangling sin that has had you wrapped up for years and years and years. He will do whatever it takes to remove from your mind those thoughts that have kept you from walking faithfully with Him. Why? Because He knows that's your greatest good and that's also His greatest glory. So get ready, church. So get ready for what? First of all, I'd say get ready for suffering. It's just a reality in this life. But understand, getting ready for it means I begin to see that God is using my suffering. He's not, he will not waste one ounce of suffering in your life. Do you believe that? If you belong to Jesus Christ today, do you believe that truth, that he will not waste one ounce of suffering in your life? It will all accomplish an eternal weight of glory. Light and momentary sufferings produce an eternal weight of glory. But the pathway between those two realities is faith. Taking God at his word, putting your hope fully in what he has promised. Being ready. Being steady before him. Trusting him. Letting him be your firm foundation. And then setting your mind. Isn't that where our greatest struggles with our circumstances happen? You say, well, my greatest struggles are these circumstances in my life. No, your greatest struggles always occur on the same battlefield. It's right here. Your greatest struggles will always occur in your mind. And when your mind is set on the hope that's to be revealed, you can walk through anything and be only strengthened in your faith, not dragged away from it. You see, can that really be possible? In Christ Jesus, you better guarantee that it's only possible. It's assurance. It's biblical hope. Can we bow our heads before the Lord? I don't know what you're facing in these days. I know some in this room are wrestling in the midst of what seems like the deepest, darkest tunnel of your life. And that tunnel could have a myriad of names today, but you are in a dark, dark moment, and there are so many temptations, temptations to blame God, to run from God, to refuse God, temptations to run toward disobedience and the sin that so easily entangles in the midst of it would you hear this morning your Savior calling out to you if you know Jesus this morning and you're in the midst of the darkest tunnel of your life would you hear your Savior calling out to you this morning trust me I walked the road of the cross for you Do you really think that I would lead you down a path 
of utter destruction. He gave His life for you. Will He not also give you all good things in the life to come? Set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed. The inheritance is coming. Salvation is coming. A day is coming when these light and momentary trials will be a nothingness. Until that day, church, there needs to be a setting of the mind. There needs to be a founding of the hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I'd urge you this morning, the call of the gospel is run away from the sinking sand and run to the solid rock. Put your hope fully in the grace to be revealed. He will not leave you or forsake you. He has promised and His promise will remain true until it comes to its fulfillment in that last day. Until then, take Him by the hand. Walk step by step through your dark tunnel. Trusting that the light at the end will overwhelm all that has taken place along the way. Father God, give us eyes of faith. Put within us that living hope. Ground us so firmly in the truth of our salvation that we cannot be shaken, not because we are firm, but because you are the rock. Not because we are faithful, but because you have been and will continue to be. We take you at your word today, God, and we respond by faith. Take us by the hand and teach us to walk, we pray in Jesus' name. We know that messages like these, they they touch all of our hearts. We've all got people in our lives that are that are going through things. Um, so I just pray that this morning that uh, that you heard that God has a plan for, for your suffering. He has a plan for the, the suffering of your loved one. Uh, he cares and He is loving in the midst of it. And, and our job is to reach back. Our job is to, is to keep Him as we talked in our spiritual boot camp this morning as our true north. He is the one that will never fail. So uh, I want to pray for us uh, this morning. Um, Again, uh, many of you know that my dad is uh, having surgery here uh, in a couple of days and will be leaving for California. And um, we just want to thank everyone for all of your prayers. And um, uh, we're at that place to where we're just trusting God now. We've done what he's required of us and we'll continue doing that. But um, but want to thank you church family for all that you have done up to this point and obviously um, uh, we can we continue to trust in, in what he's um, for what he's got planned and um, and in the fact that we know that you guys are praying as well so so let me pray for us and uh, we'll be dismissed father we thank you so much for loving us that much 
Father, we thank you that, um, that before time began, Lord, um, we were on your mind. You were calling us out. You were choosing us. You were choosing to love us. You were choosing even to allow us to go through the things that we're going to have to go through in order that we may, uh, in order that we may become like your son. But, Father, we thank you uh, even more so for the eternity that you have in store for us. Lord, help us in the midst of the things that we are dealing with and the things that we are struggling with. Help us to remember that you have an eternity set out before all of us that is void of, of, of suffering, that is void of sorrow, of pain. No more tears, your word says. So, Lord, just give us the courage. Give us uh, all that we need. Father, help us to keep our eyes focused on you. Help us to keep you at that place of, of true north, Lord, because we know that we can rejoice in our suffering because of who you are, because of what you've done for us, and because of what you've promised. And it's in your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen.